You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Just a heads up before we go into this, we are probably going to mispronounce some things, especially Chinese names. Apologize in advance. Hopefully it won't be too bad. Um, We're going to do our best, but please do forgive us if we get something wrong. So on our last episode, we talked about how to survive the sack of Carthage during the Third Punic War. And today we've got a number of new sieges for you. Merv, Suyang, and the fictional siege of Troy. And then we're going to give you some overall siege survival hacks that will raise your chances of living through any siege situation. So let's get started. So for this next siege, this is the Siege of Merv. And for this one, we're going to jump to 1221 AD, which is more than 1300 years after the Siege of Carthage. The city of Merv was an important stop on the Silk Road located in modern day Turkmenistan. It was ancient, originally founded by Cyrus the Great during the 6th century BC. And it was cosmopolitan. It was home to Zoroastrians, Buddhists, Christians, Muslims, and many others. And it was really, really rich. Just a little aside before we go on. Could you tell people who might not know what the Silk Road was? The Silk Road was trade routes that connected east and west. Goods traveled along it, like tea and silk and things like that. Anyway, so by the 1300s AD, Merv was one of the capital cities of the Seljuk Empire, which was a medieval Turco-Persian Islamic empire that stretched all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. It had half a million inhabitants, making it, by some estimates, the most populated city in the world at the time, also making it about as populated as Carthage. So Merv was famous for a lot of things. It was out Outstandingly beautiful, with a complex network of canals that fed elaborate, well-tended gardens. 
It had rich, beautiful horses, mosques, and palaces. The mausoleum of the Sultan Sanjar had a dome sheath in turquoise, so bright blue you could see it from a day's ride away. The city was known for producing high-quality crucible steel, the softest cotton anywhere in the Muslim world, and the largest, juiciest melons. It was also known for its educated populace. It attracted mathematicians, physicians, astronomers, philosophers, fashion designers, artists, musicians, and poets. It had a renowned astronomical observatory and 10 important libraries boasting over 150,000 volumes. The people of Merv were known as Marwazi. And to be Marwazi had a kind of cachet. You were thought to be classy and sophisticated. And then the Mongols came to visit. By the time the Mongols got to Merv, they had gotten pretty good at conquest. Genghis Khan really started to consolidate his power around 1206 AD. In 1211, he started his conquest of the Jin Empire of China. The siege of Merv took place 10 years after that and was not led by Genghis himself, but by his youngest son by his first wife, Taliui. Taliui had already been active in the area before he got to Merv, and the people of Merv knew he was coming. Refugees had been streaming into the city from the devastation being wrought in the surrounding countryside, and they must have been terrified. When Genghis Khan was just starting out, the Mongols weren't exactly known for siege warfare. They were nomadic horse archers who fought under the open sky. But by this time, they'd been fighting the Chinese and Muslims for years, taking cities and assimilating engineers and siege warfare experts from both cultures. So by the time the Mongols hit Merv, they were supercharged deadly horse archers with expert city-breaking capabilities. They had battering rams, trebuchets, enormous catapults, and siege towers at their disposal. They would catapult giant rocks, flaming missiles, and diseased dead bodies over the walls of towns they were besieging. And psychological warfare was also a major tactic. The basic Mongol playbook was to send envoys to cities they wanted to conquer, demanding that the inhabitants surrender without a struggle. If that happened, the people would be spared. But if they decided to fight, the Mongols would often kill every single inhabitant of a city, men, women, and children. The Mongols also weren't above making an example of entire cities. In 1215, about six years before Merv, they devastated Beijing. A few months later, an envoy described mountains of bones piled high outside the city walls. Even the ground around the city was squelchy with human fat and blood and juices from decomposing corpses for acres and acres around. In this way, the Mongols spread a terrible story about their own brutality. For every city the Mongols treated this way, untold numbers would open their gates without a fight. Yeah, dude, I'd open my gates. I mean, if I knew about the squelchy human fat and blood in the soil for acres around the city, I would freaking open the gate. But also on top of the biological warfare, there's the germ warfare. I mean, catapulting diseased bodies in. Like, that's got to be some of the earliest, well, I'm sure they were doing that before, but kind of hard. Terrible. The people of Merv probably knew all about this. And it may be why the city didn't fight as hard as it could have. The city surrendered after about a week. In a lot of cases, the Mongols would spare the inhabitants of cities that surrender without a fight. This was not the case with Merv. Possibly because they took six days to surrender instead of doing it immediately. And possibly because when a group of 800 Mongols tested the city's defenses, the Marwazi captured and executed 60 of them. This is exactly the kind of thing that would piss the Mongols off. The Mongols demanded 200 of the city's wealthiest and most prominent citizens who they tortured to learn where they kept their wealth. The city opened its gates and the Mongols went in unopposed. It took four days to herd the city's inhabitants out onto the surrounding plains. From there, the Mongols separated out 400 artisans with useful skills and chose some children to enslave. 
Then they separated the men, women, and the rest of the children and assigned each Mongol warrior about 300 to 400 prisoners to execute in a single day. Remember, there were about 7,000 Mongol warriors. So if these numbers are correct, that means that in one day, the Mongols killed as many as 2.8 million people. Okay, so some historians doubt those figures because they're just so incredible. Like, a lot of the time, the ancient sources inflate numbers, yeah. you know, of people involved in battles and people who die. And there are historians who doubt these figures. So when I was researching this, I compared this to other horrible Holocaust events. Death toll estimates for the um, Holocaust are around 17 million over a period of six years. The Rwandan genocide was half a million to a million deaths, and the Khmer Rouge killings were about 1.3 million to 3 million deaths over approximately four years. We said earlier that the population of Merv was about half a million, but it had swelled leading up to the siege by refugees coming in from the outside. Even so, some historians have called into question whether the Mongols could have killed this many people in that short a time. Genghis biographer John Mann puts it brutally, for a Mongol, an unresisting prisoner would have been as easy to dispatch as a sheep and had far less value. It takes only seconds to slit a throat. For 7,000 men, the slaughter of a million would have been an easy two hours work. So how do you survive this sacking? Open the gates! <laughs> Now, like have, having opened the gates earlier probably would have helped and maybe not killing those 60 people, maybe that would have helped. But <laughs> let's say you're an ordinary person who has no control over these decisions. How would you survive? I think the best way would be to have a specialized skill. One notable point is that 400 artisans were spared and the Mongols were known to spare people they considered useful, like craftsmen, philosophers, artists, and engineers. In the siege of Baghdad, um, the Mongols tied notes to arrows, inviting craftspeople to surrender and shot them over the walls. And you would hope then that they wouldn't shoot any craftspeople with these arrows. And I also kind of feel like if you don't have a really good marketable skill and you know the Mongols are coming, maybe now's the time to sign up for Coursera or something something. <laughs> Time to bulk up that CV. Right. You, you better you better start like cramming <laughs> because the Mongols are going to get here and they better think you're useful. Some accounts also say that the Mongols took a few children as slaves in this siege. And you can sometimes survive a Mongol siege by being enslaved, especially if you were a woman a child or a craftsperson, but the Mongols were often moving fast in areas far from their home base, sacking large numbers of towns, and a huge population of slaves would have slowed them down. So they were less eager, from what I've read at least, they were less eager to take slaves than the Romans were. Yeah, it also wasn't a safe bet to be taken alive by the Mongols. If they took you alive in this siege, they might use you as cannon fodder in the next siege. There are exactly. lots of records of defenders looking down from city walls to see the Mongols using people they knew as human shields and pushing them alive into defensive ditches to fill them. Wow, that's just brutal. One thing you couldn't do was hide, then come back out when everything blew over. Now, this is unfortunate because that was totally my strategy, Jenny. But <laughs> well, it's not going to work. It might have worked in Carthage, but it is not going to work during a Mongol siege. Nope. According to A History of Iran, Empire of the Mind by Michael Axworthy, when the Mongols withdrew, those who had escaped death by concealing themselves into holes and cavities emerged from their hiding places. A detachment of Mongols, part of the rear guard, now arrived before the town. Wishing to have their share of the slaughter, they called upon these unfortunate wretches to come out into the open country, each carrying a skirt full of grain, and having them thus at their mercy, they massacred these last feeble remnants of one of the greatest cities of Islam. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. 
They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so this next siege is the Siege of Suyang, and this takes place in 757 AD during the Tang Dynasty in China. So in 756 AD, the general An Lushan, and I apologize if I mispronounce anything, the general An Lushan turned against the dynasty and established his own state called Yan. So the city of Suyang was loyal to the Tang Dynasty. It was strategically located, giving access to all Tang-controlled areas south of the Yangtze River. So this siege occurred in 757, and it's noteworthy in particular for the cannibalism involved and the defenders' determination to fight to the death. There were only about 7,000 soldiers defending Suyang's walls when and An Lushan brought to bear an army of 130... <laughs> this is a crazy number. He brought to bear an army of over 130 to 150,000. The city was drastically outnumbered. I mean, that might be the understatement of the, the year. Yeah. Uh, the defenders employed a number of battle tactics to gain an edge over the huge besieging army they were facing. For instance, they played battle drums all night, keeping the attacking army awake and on edge. I love a bit of psychological warfare. Right? Eventually, yeah. So eventually the attackers got habituated to the drums. Of course they did. And they slept through them because they were so exhausted. That's when the defenders went out of the walls and attacked. The people in Suyang were super clever, you know, like they were just using every trick at their disposal. I really like that. I do too. I mean, if you are, you know, if you're outnumbered, you have to do whatever you can do. I mean, it goes later on into the trickery we have um, when we talk about the Trojan War. Right. Which is, which is a whole other level. So this is another really clever trick. The defenders learned who the most important commanders were on the other side by shooting weeds, not arrows, at the attackers. So what happened was the soldiers ran directly to their commanding general to report that the defenders have already run out of arrows. You know, they think, okay, we're done. But what this did is it showed the defenders exactly who the general was. One of the besieging generals got shot in the eye with an arrow this way. Super smart. So smart and such a good strategic way to keep your um, ammunition back because obviously they don't have enough ammunition probably to kill 150,000 soldiers but they right. can kill the generals and if you can kill the generals then half the battle's done. Right. You got to make every arrow count. Mm -hmm. The city of Suyang once had about a year's worth of food stockpiled but the district governor had recently redistributed that food so that that meant that when the siege came, the stockpile was much less than it should have been. In six months, there was a serious food shortage. Soldiers got a small rice ration and were expected to supplement that by eating whatever insects, vermin, plants, and animals were to hand. In two more months, not even a fly on the wall was left in the city. The defending general, Shang Sun, ordered some of his best soldiers, 30 in all, to escape the besieged city and ask for help from other cities and fortresses nearby. About 26 of the 30 got through enemy lines, but none of the neighbors would help. So this is... One of the most badass things that I've read in in the um, in the entire purview of my research for this episode, one of the captains, a respected soldier named Nan Juyun, so he he asked a local governor for help, and the governor turned him down. He offered Nan Juyun a feast instead, trying to get him to join his own army. Nan Juyun refused, saying, "The reason why I risked my life to come here is because the local civilians and my comrades have no food to eat for over a month. How can I eat such a huge feast when I know what my comrades are facing. He then chewed off his own finger to leave as proof he'd been there and rode back to 
Su Yang. The governor was so impressed, he sent 3,000 troops after him. And I just have to say, the dude shoot off his own finger and all you're going to do is send 3,000 troops? That is so intense. <laughs> also, like, I hope you sent the food with the 3,000 troops as well, because that's just 3,000 more mouths to feed. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes the troops are the food. All right. So the finger, the finger chewing off incident and the 3000 troops did not actually tilt the balance. All of their avenues had been exhausted and the defenders still refused to surrender and cede the land south of the Yangtze to the rebels. According to the old book of Tang, the food in the city had run out. The dwellers traded their children to eat and cooked bodies of the dead. At this time, Shang Sun took his concubine out and killed her in front of his soldiers in order to feed them. He said, you have been working hard at protecting the city wholeheartedly. Since I can't cut my own flesh to feed you, how can I keep this woman and just ignore the dangerous situation? All the soldiers cried, and they did not want to eat. Shang Sun ordered them to eat the flesh. Afterwards, they caught the women in the city. After the women were run out, they turned to the old and young males. 20,000 to 30,000 people were eaten. People always remained loyal. So when they say people always remain loyal here... What I think they mean is that the civilians willingly submitted to being killed to feed the soldiers. But it also says that they turned to both old and young males, and a lot of the young males were soldiers. So I'm guessing that, I don't know, maybe the soldiers were eating each other by the end of this, too. It's maybe, hard to tell. Or maybe young male children. Yeah, that's true. Because um, if they anyway, eat all the women, I'd assume they'd eat all the women and then all the female children and then all the old men and then all the young boys. I would assume they would be eating the children, yes. At least, like, both genders, you know? So only about 400 people survived the siege, and those were all soldiers. So how do you survive this siege? I think don't be a woman, child, or old person. Just don't be a non-combatant in general. I mean, don't be the general's concubine. Don't, definitely do not be the general's concubine. You'd think that that would protect you because a lot of the time um, the generals would have a say over who gets the food and they would redistribute it like what we saw in Carthage. But in this case, it is not helping you. In this case, you are the food. Yeah, you are. You are the rations. <laughs> It's also not like the soldiers themselves did that well. Only about 400 of the 7,000 ultimately survived the siege. I mean, another thing you could do is don't be non-Jiyun and don't go back. <laughs> <laughs> like, be a really good soldier that they picked to run the barricades and then get out and then don't come back. I mean, it's all about non-self-sacrifice in this case. Yeah, I mean, that kind of goes against the ethos of what they had going on there, Jenny. It, it go, seems to go against the culture of the city and maybe of the time, but... Yeah, extreme self-sacrifice is not going to help you individually survive this siege. Well, that's a bleak it might, it note might to be, end things on. You'll be a hero, but you'll be dead. I mean, I probably wouldn't have eaten my finger off. Also, if like we're so hungry for food, I might have just eaten my finger. If you had a giant feast in front of you and the choice is eat your finger or eat this feast, I would eat the feast. Yeah, I would too. We would not be good soldiers. We would be bad at <laughs> we would be bad at this siege. We'd probably get killed and eaten because we're we're not <laughs> like useful yeah. enough. No, we are not. <laughs> no amount of Corsair is going to help. <laughs> <laughs> For our final siege, we turn to one of the most well-known sackings in mythology. It is hotly debated if the Trojan War happened. There is archaeological evidence that suggests that a war or battles occurred between 1230 and 1180 BC. In the area where they think the city of Troy 
would have stood. Archaeologists believe that there is evidence that a Bronze Age city was sacked and razed to the ground. This time frame roughly corresponds to the epic poems, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid, all of which were written much later. But was there a Helen, Paris, Achilles, Odysseus, and the famous Trojan horse? That might be something to debate in a much longer podcast. But for now, let's talk about how you'd survive that infamous night of the horse. Okay, your city has been under siege for 10 years. And again, there's debate about the length of the war and the siege, but that is for another episode, which no doubt we will exhaustively cover. So for now, let's just go with 10 years. You've come to an uneasy relationship with the Greek soldiers who litter the beaches, the battles on the Troad. This war has been going on for nearly a generation, but you've been safe behind the high walls of Troy. You've lived your life watching the men go out to fight on the dusty plain outside your city and experience joy as your loved ones return or heartache if they don't. You've lived through the fall of Hector, the rage of Achilles, the death of Paris. You've experienced funeral games for heroes whose stories will be told through the ages. And finally, finally, thank God, it looks like the Greeks are finally leaving. Yeah, they're like the worst house guests you never, ever, ever want to have. I mean, the funeral games were fun and all, but... But honestly, it's been a stalemate for 10 years. We killed all our heroes. Let's just, let's be done now. Right, and I'd really like to go to the beach again. So just as suddenly as the Greek Navy descended on your shores 10 years ago, they're gone. In their place stands a giant horse. Now, many scholars agree that there was no Trojan horse. That if there was a Trojan horse, it was more likely some kind of battering ram, which I just think is really fascinating. I think that's fascinating Um, too. Would it have been a battering ram with a horse's head on it? Like a big bronze horse's head or something? Is that what they mean? Yeah, potentially. And I mean, horses were so important to the Trojans because they were horse traders. Right. That's what they did. So seeing like an an ancient horse, I mean, that would be such a a boon to their city and their people and kind of a reconciliatory gift. Yeah. Okay, here's here's your, your mascot. We're giving it to you and saying, you guys have won. We're going home. This war of attrition has just been too much for us. Yeah, and that's actually a really interesting detail. Like, I didn't realize how much horses were tied into the Trojan identity. And it's it's sort of like more of a personalized tribute than I realized, which is really fascinating. So it could have yeah. been like a Trojan goat, but it's not. I mean, <laughs> I do have a t-shirt that has this Trojan seahorse, which I just oh, think is just well played. That's amazing. But anyway, let's assume for the moment that there was a horse, because right. that makes a much more interesting visual image. Right. So on the beach, there's a giant horse. We've decided it is not a goat. It is not a gerbil. It is definitely not a seahorse. It's a horse and it's not a battering ram. It will live on throughout the ages in legend. And there is a really great description of that from Virgil's Aeneid book two. After many years have slipped by, the leaders of the Greeks, opposed by the fates and damaged by the war, build a horse of mountainous size through Pallas's divine art and weave planks of fur over its ribs. They pretend it's a votive offering. This rumor spreads. They secretly hide a picked body of men chosen by lot there in the dark body, filling the belly and the huge cavernous insides with armed warriors. Now, standing next to this epic horse is a Greek deserter and spy named Sinon, a.k.a. the part of the story that most people forget when they talk about this. Sinon explains that the Greek army has gone home. The cost of the war has finally become too much for their city-states to bear. They've retreated, and in their wake, they have left this giant horse. So after much debate, and again, contrary to popular belief, there was a huge debate over what to do with this horse. Should they burn it? Should they throw it from the walls of Troy or consecrate it to the goddess Athena? And um, if you listen to the description in 
that we just were talking about with the um, palace. Palace is divine art. Palace is usually palace Athena. So mm. they're talking about Athena again. Um, so after ages of debate, the Trojans decide that they're going to bring that cursed horse into the walls of their city. Don't you think that there are a lot of holes in this plan? They could have oh, oh, they could have yeah. burned the the horse and they could have tossed it off the walls of the city and they could have just pushed it in the sea and then what are the guys going to do in there? Well, there was definitely a trap door, right. but I think it was only openable. I mean, again, this is according to mythology from the inside. Mm-hmm. And there's a really great scene in the Aeneid. I don't know exactly where it is in the Aeneid with Lacunin, I believe his name is. I might be pronouncing it wrong and butchering it. And if I did, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was, I believe, one of the the priests or men in Troy and he was like hey guys this is definitely a trap do not do not take this horse in it's like do the not one take smart it in. person in Troy pretty much so he's saying it's definitely a Greek trap and as he's saying this Poseidon sends these giant sea serpents out to kill him and his two children. And um, you think that would be a sign too? Like You would think so. Oh wait, the gods want to shut this guy up. Maybe we should listen to him. I mean, exactly. And I mean, there's also the fact that we don't talk about it in this episode, but I will talk about it when we talk discuss the Trojan War. Um, there's Cassandra who predicted the fall of Troy. Right. So there well, were no people. no one listened to her. I mean, that's the whole point of Cassandra. Yeah, no one listened to her. Right. So the horse at this point has been brought inside the walls. And what happens next? The party to end all parties, obviously. There's drinking and dancing and feasting and celebrating and people are getting lit. The walls to the city are still shut and locked at night. Maybe they didn't trust their good fortune that much. Or maybe it's just like Poseidon, I guess, is killing people outside or something. Poseidon is not subtle. So the walls to the city are still shut. The old habits died hard, and there are no first-hand accounts of what happened to Troy, but there's a passage from the play of the Trojan Women by the ancient Greek playwright Euripides, written long after the fall of Troy, which describes what the night of the horse might have looked like. This is this is a passage from one of the women in the, in the Greek chorus, and she begins, In that hour around the house I was singing as I danced to that maiden of the hills, the child of Zeus, when lo, there rang along the town a cry of death, which filled the homes of Troy, and little babes in terror clung about their mother's skirts as forth from their ambush came the warrior band, the handiwork of Maiden Palace. This would be Anon. Yes. And oddly, I mean, she says, uh, I danced to that maiden of the hills, the child of Zeus. I mean, I would assume that's also Athena, isn't it? That's also Athena, or it could oh, be Artemis. Right, interesting. But I think it's probably Athena, because mm-hmm. they discussed consecrating the, the horse to Athena. Right, so Athena's playing both sides here, is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And in the in the Iliad and the Odyssey, then you talk about the gods playing both sides. They had their favorite mortals. Uh, the handiwork of Maiden Palace. Anon, the altars ran with frigid blood, and desolation reigned over every bed, where a young man lay beheaded, a glorious crown for Hellas, one I for her, the nurse of youth, but for our Phrygian fatherland, a bitter grief. So who are the Phrygians? I'm assuming it's another way of saying Trojans because this is our Phrygian fatherland. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, So there are many schools of thought as to how the Greeks who were hiding in the horse knew when to come out and begin the sacking. Um, Some believe it's when Sinon signaled the Greek fleet, which had retreated to a nearby island out of sight of the city, because it would be really obvious, you guys, if they were still there. Once the signal was given, Sinon would have waited until the agreed hour and then let the Trojans out of the horse. Another theory says that Helen betrayed the Trojans and opened the gates or gave a signal to the men hiding in the horse. 
Helen. Mm -hmm. So Helen, I thought she was in love with Paris, though. Well, Paris is dead. And after Paris dies, she gets given to one of his brothers. And it is not a love match. Uh And I do think, I mean, according to mythology, she's been there 10 years. And the bloom is off the rose. I mean, poor Helen gets it on both sides. I really am looking forward to later uncovering her uh, a bit more on the podcast. So whether or not Sinon gave a signal or Helen opened the horse, the outcome was the same. Within a matter of hours, the city was taken. Troy was burnt to the ground. The temples and palaces were destroyed, desecrated, and ransacked. Men were killed. Women were raped and taken as slaves. Children were either killed or taken as slaves. There's no way to know exactly what happened as we don't have recorded history. Instead, we have to rely on mythology and archaeology, which are very interesting bedfellows. But we can get a feeling for how the siege of Troy might have been by looking at the play of the Trojan Woman. So the Trojan Woman was written by the playwright Euripides and produced in 415 BC. It is widely regarded to be a commentary on the siege of Milos. So by using um, the aftermath of the fall of Troy and looking at the impact this had on the women of the city, the playwright was highlighting to the contemporary Athenians the horror of their recent siege of the island of Milos. So Milos was a contemporary siege that had recently taken place and he's basically using it as a model for how the siege of Troy had happened in this play. Exactly. And he he felt very, I mean, the Trojan Woman is one of the big, let's say, anti-war um, protest plays. And it's still performed mm-hmm. today in different countries and different areas of the world. And it still has that same guttural punch to it. But it yeah. was one of those things that is really interesting to look at because it lets us see what the aftermath of a siege would be like in, the, in an ancient city and how the women who survived it it would be impacted. So a little bit about the siege of Milos. It began in December of 416 BC. Athens sent over an army of about 3,000 men to conquer the island. The Athenians wanted the Melians to pay tribute or they would face total destruction of their island. The Melians refused this offer, which was a huge mistake. And then the siege began. The siege was so awful that we already know it, it was referred to in the Trojan Women, but it was also referred to by another ancient playwright, Aristophanes in his play of the birds. You'll turn it from a hole into a home. You'll rule mankind like gnats and cockchafers. And with million famines, starve the gods. So can we just talk about what a cockchafer is? Because that sounds like a crotch disease. I'm pretty sure it's a bird, Jenny. But <laughs> I can see why your mind went there. So anyway, the millions. <laughs> I'm not even going to comment because you've just gone there for me. I just, you know, the Melians and their cockchafers tried to break the siege several times, but they were not successful. And the people inside the city were starving. So when the city finally fell, all of the adult men were killed and the women and children were sold into slavery. So while we might not know exactly what happened at Troy, we do know what happened in Milos. And this gives us some framework for what an ancient sacking would have looked like. One of the things about the Trojan Woman, and it's a play I read as a freshman in college, and it's always stayed with me because the very end of it, they fling Hector's son, Astaniax, who's just two years old from the walls of Troy. And that, mm. that's kind of a common thing. And that's what Euripides is talking about. Um, a lot of times the children of really high ranking um, soldiers or royalty weren't allowed to grow up. Because they don't want to use them as a rallying point. You know, that cute little two-year-old kid could go away and be raised on an island somewhere. And then some enemies of yours could decide that that person is going to, you're going to use them as your figurehead to take back your city. So they're basically like a bomb waiting to go off. And I think in the siege of Milos, the Greeks came in, they decimated that city and then they made it a Greek colony. That was that was the culture and those are the people who took over. It's got a really interesting 
parallel with Troy because that's pretty much what happened. They raised it to the ground and what came back eventually was no longer a Trojan city. Those people were scattered to the winds and you follow the history of the Aeneid, which Aeneas is one of the founders of Rome. The Aeneid was something that was commissioned by Augustus, allowed the Emperor Augustus to link back his lineage to the fall of Troy. So let's take that with a bit of a grain of salt. Like but, a boulder of salt. <laughs> but it's interesting and I don't think it's wrong to sort of posit that ancient Trojans might have eventually gone on to found places like Rome and other settlements. So how would you survive the sack of Troy? Well, I mean, the big thing for me is don't get drunk. Don't be an adult man. I mean, the best thing you could do is be a woman or a child. But sadly, this would probably not work out very well for you. You'd wind up in slavery or worse. So let's talk about how you would survive a sacking in general. So we've looked at three real life sieges and one non real life siege, but that was probably based on a lot of, you know, eyewitness familiarity with this kind of thing happening. And I think that one of the things that stands out that you have in common, just in general, is to stockpile food because there's a lot of people starving. Like the Melian famine became the sort of stock word for really, really bad famine for a while. Maintain sanitary conditions for as long as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. In a siege, you have more people than usual living in confined spaces. Increased instances of hunger and violence and other conditions that raise the rates of dying and no ability to take your dead outside the city walls to bury them. One thing to mention here is that the Romans would bury their deads outside the city walls. That was like their custom. All their cemeteries were on the roads leading into their cities. Um, And also, if you're in a siege situation, um, a lot of refugees from the countryside would stream into the cities. That's what happened to Merv. And that would swell the population anyway within a limited place because these cities were walled. So you've already got major overcrowding and also your your dead are like, there's nowhere to put them except for in the city where you live. Things get really gross really fast. They get super gross because you have these corpses and unsanitary conditions, which of course breed diseases. You've got invading armies who are sometimes trying to exacerbate this by catapulting plague-infected corpses over the walls of your besieged city. Yeah, the Mongols did that. So super, super important that you keep your water sources as clean as possible. Right. If you don't have water, you you run out of fight really fast. So once the army comes in, right, there's going to be fighting. It's going to be street by street. Hide in the place where the fighting isn't as intense. If there is one, and there might not be one, once the invading army breaks in, being a civilian is not going to protect you. The walls that divide the fighting men and the women and children and non-combatants pretty much dissolve. Um, Children, women, old people often help defend their cities using whatever weapons they could find, and it frequently did not go well for them. Um, Sometimes the only way to avoid the fighting was to hide. But that was also kind of a crapshoot, depending on how pervasive the fighting was and whether there was a fire. The next thing is to avoid flammable areas. Invading armies would often set cities on fire as part of their attack once they broke in. This made it really hard to just hide and wait out fighting. Another thought is that if you're in an ancient city with sewers, go and hide in the sewer. Great idea. Exactly. This is this this is this might save your life, guys. If you're living in a city with a sewer, which a lot of them didn't have, um, Rome had sewers. And sewers, you know, they have the benefit of being wet. So you're much safer from the fire. Plus they had lots of nasty crawly holes that enemy soldiers probably wouldn't go into. I'd avoid a straight up cesspool because the noxious fumes could kill you. Even if you weren't actively defending the city, the mob mentality often ruled during a sacking. Children were frequently killed in horrible ways. Just heads up, this is a little disturbing, like being impaled on spears and paraded around by enemy soldiers. Women had a very high probability of being raped, but they also had a better chance than men of being enslaved rather than outright murdered. So if you were an enemy leader, you may be spared for your curse 
courage. I mean, the Mongols did this, though rarely. They spared the general Demetrio during the siege of Kiev for this particular bravery. And the Romans spared Hasdrubal. For example, the Mongols, every so often they would spare somebody for their bravery, but they would also kill people horrifically. Um, For instance, after the siege of Baghdad, the Mongols supposedly rolled the caliph up in a carpet and rode their horses over him, trampling him to death. This is because they believed that the earth would be offended if they spilled royal blood on it. So, but the most important hack for surviving a sacking is this. Know your sacker. Everything else will depend on who you're facing. Um, And if you're facing the Romans, healthy women and children might be sold into slavery rather than killed. That's a horrible, horrible fate. But if you wanted to survive, you should try to hide as far from the killing as possible and wait it out. If you're facing the ancient Greeks, just don't be a guy. Your chances were pretty good if you were a woman. Uh, I mean, pretty good, meaning you would probably live and again, be sold into slavery and probably right. raped. So, so- by by pretty good, <laughs> we mean you wouldn't be dead, but every other horror that could possibly happen to you is on the table. Avoid too-good-to-be-true gift animals. <laughs> right, no gift animals. If you're facing Mongols, get out. The Mongols were very good at siege warfare, and they would slaughter everyone down to the last man, woman, child, pets, goldfish. Don't hide and wait it out. They will circle back to clean up stragglers. First step, right? Get your city leaders to surrender immediately. Do not try to fight even for five seconds before surrendering even the slightest amount of resistance would tick them off. The Mongols were brutal with people who resisted, even nominally, but they did regularly spare those who surrendered, and they they kept their promises. You could also try to bribe them. There are some examples of cities sending money and clothes and horses to the Mongols to bribe them to go away, and sometimes that actually worked. But your best shot of surviving a Mongol siege is to have a useful skill. Mongols love to get the most talented and knowledgeable to work for them. If you are in Rome circa 410 AD and facing Alaric and the Visigoths, I cannot shut up about Alaric of the Visigoths, make a huge display of your Christian faith or hide in a church. They might spare you if you believe the Christian writers of the time, although archaeology presents a slightly different story. So there there were sieges that you could maybe survive. Um, I'm kind of a little bit side-eyeing all those stories that they tell you about how, like, the Goths would escort particularly holy people to churches and make sure they were safe and give them back all their money. I think that's a little bit too good to be true. And I'm just going to warn you all now that you probably have not heard of Alaric of the Visigoths, but by the time (laughs) you are through listening to all of our episodes, you will know all about Alaric of the Visigoths. And you'll be like, how did I not know who he was? (laughs) He's a household name in my household. Moving on. So who do we think the best people were to face, Jen? I think the Romans were actually one of the better people to face believe it or not. Yeah. Despite everything we told you last week about Carthage. Oh, the street, the street, the, street street the reason for that is that the Romans sold a lot of slaves. They would save a lot, like comparatively, they would save large portions of the population. And I say comparatively based on, I don't know, the Mongols saving 400 out of millions of people or in Suyang, which is everybody dies because they get eaten. Um, so I think that one of the interesting things to think about with this is, is it better to survive a siege given what could happen to you after? Yeah, I mean, I think it's impossible to look at the outcomes for ordinary people in these in these situations, which were not uncommon in ancient times. I mean, they weren't uncommon in medieval times. You know, no. people came in and they wanted what you had and they would take it. Well, they wanted, and not sometimes only- they wanted you. Sometimes you were exactly. part of the spoils. The thing that runs through all of these stories is the threat of sexual violence to women and certainly the, the threat of slavery for everybody. And it's a situation where 
slavery, I don't want to say that slavery is the better outcome, um, unless you consider slavery a better outcome than death. And like you said before, this is why people fought so hard. Here's our final question. Who were the worst people to face in a, in a sacking? Oh, the Mongols. If you're facing the Mongols, just get out. Nope. Do not pass go. <laughs> do not collect $200. Just get out. That's my advice. What do you think, Jen? <laughs> I mean, I totally agree with you. Just run. 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 Or have a really good skill and be like, hey, I can make this cool thing you really, really need. Make yourself useful to the con and you might get out of there alive. So these were uh, four of our, um, I don't want to call them favorite, but these were four sieges that fascinated us. my favorite us. sieges. <laughs> They're Jenny's favorite. They were four that fascinated us. What are your favorite ancient sieges? Thank you so much for listening to our second episode. Um, we'd really love it if you would subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or anywhere else where you get your podcasts. Check us out at ancienthistoryfangirl.com and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Ancient History Fangirl. <laughs>